Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Pete. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I have an extremely special guest with us today. Uh, we have Stephen Brust. Uh, Stephen Brust is a, you know, we didn't talk about how I was going to introduce you, so I'm just going to gush. I hope that's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, apparently it isn't okay because um, the power just went out here. So apparently, the electronics are not happy with that. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to turn off the space heater, I think, and uh, I'm sitting out in uh, Skylar's shed so I can smoke. So if I, uh, I'm going to turn that off and then try again. All right. So. All right. So uh, can I go now? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we're still. Uh, it's you know the the computer battery is working. Yes. Oh, fire away. Enough. Okay, so uh, uh, Stephen Bruce is known for a lot of things. Uh, he uh, uh, most most of them in terms of writing. Uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> well, those are the ones we talk about. Absolutely, um, he wrote a, a series of novels actually that are still in process about uh, Vlad Taltos, uh, set in a world or universe called uh, Dragera. That are uh, I I almost want to say mobster books with a with a fantasy tinge. Uh, there's uh, he also had a series of books set in the same universe that have uh, oh god what would you call it a Victor Hugo vibe? Uh, more Dumas. Okay, that's fair. Um, and, uh, a number of, of standalone books, one of which we are going to be talking about today, uh, called Agyar. Before we go any further, I want to make clear to everybody that it is impossible to talk about this book without spoiling. So before we go any further, if you have not read Agyar and you don't want to get mad at me, hit pause, go read it and come back. All right. So uh, before we get started on the the book, Stephen, I'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, the pre Joycean Fellowship. I know you probably are asked about this way too often. Uh, it, it ties really well into this podcast, uh, pod, our Podside Picnic, because we basically the thrust of this podcast is that uh, genre lines are more or less bullshit. 
there's a lot of writing that is considered pulp today that is actually of quality. And what matters as much as anything is the, uh, the connection the book has to the reader rather than the connection the book has to the ivory tower. So could you talk about what the Prejoicean Fellowship is and where that idea came from? Okay. Um, what it is, it is many things at once. First and foremost, um, an excuse for me and a bunch of friends to get together and argue about books um, over coffee or whiskey or whatever else happens to be around and ceaseless literary discussions because that's how we roll. Um, <laughs> the best brief explanation for it I've ever heard was from Tappan King, who said the Prejoicean Fellowship exists to make fun of the excesses of modern literature while simultaneously mining it for everything of value. Um, the thing about Joyce, I mean, we're based, it's obviously a callback to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. And our attitude about Joyce, he said foolishly, speaking for everyone else in the group, which, which never flies, but I'm going to do it. Um, our attitude about Joyce is much like the pre-Raphaelite um, attitude about Raphael. Nothing against, they had nothing against Raphael. They just thought too many people following him took the wrong message. You know, okay. they, they picked up uh, a lot of the, uh, instead of his brilliance, his obscurity, which his obscurity and his brilliance fed into each other, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Um, all of which is to say, yes, you're right. Uh, we object to the div division between highbrow and lowbrow literature. Um, my ideal novel is one you can read in three hours and talk about for three weeks. That's, yeah. I mean, uh, I, it, it's it's really amazing to be working on a project for a couple of years and then turn around and discover that other people have been having similar discussions for over a decade. Um so so how does how does one join the Prejoicean Fellowship? Is there like a, a chalice I need to drink from or like what's what's uh, how did this form? I guess. Well, it, it's easier now. We used to require you to um, to sacrifice and ritually eat a, a um, postmodernist. <laughs> that requirement's no longer active. So what you have to do is on some work somewhere sometime. Put the initials PJF after your name. Fair enough. Okay. Like, well, it's I. I had to make this connection because just the discovery that that other other people are screaming similar things to us, it was really reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, um, as I've I've said before, uh, I object to the pretentiousness associated with art. In many cases, um, I also object to the sort of shamefaced, no, we're not doing art here. Um, the degree to which something is, is, is worthy of artistic consideration is something history will judge. I don't think we need to be ashamed to use that word. I also don't think we should be using that word as a club. Yeah. That, that makes sense? 
It, you know, it make it makes perfect sense. Uh, one of the things uh, Con- Connor couldn't make it tonight, which is great because, like, I I kind of wanted to hog all the time talking to you. <laughs> but uh, w- one of the things we talk about a lot is that most of the divisions that have come up in literature or writing in general are done by people making economic decisions or stocking shelves. Like, none of it actually applies to the writing in a useful way. It applies to the packaging. I think that is exactly true. Um, If we look at contemporary literature, we see that it has conventions no less than romance or science fiction or or any other marketing category. Um, It does certain things for certain people who crave that. As for how, as for quality, you strive to make everything really, really good. Um, to to have leave a lasting mark on the reader to maybe even uh, show the reader a little bit of how life works that is concealed normally to to bring things to the surface to lay the truth before the reader that we love doing that um, we don't feel that conflicts with a rip roaring yarn with a lot of great sword fights right yeah That's, okay this is I I'm. Uh... God, am I glad you agreed to come on. Um, so let's, I, I'm going to skip around on my questions because the, there's one that real I really feel like ties into this. And that is uh, Zelazny. Because I know that he, like, I don't know that he ever made the arguments that you're talking about, but he's certainly the living embodiment of what we're talking about. It's like, if you, if you look at, at Lord of Light, uh, no, nobody being intellectually honest can tell me whether that's science fiction or fantasy or what the hell it is, because he didn't play by those rules. He did something mythic. Uh-huh. Uh, that is, that is, you have just named what is probably my absolute favorite book in the world. So, Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, me too, actually. So, uh, so you, you and I both love Zelazny and his work. And uh, like, I've, I've, I've certainly known that about you longer than you've known it about me because like, I've been reading you for decades and like there, you, you make similar decisions. Like you make those, those mythic figures that are sort of streetwise and the, the way characters talk to each other. There's some similarities, similarities and, uh, and like poetic imagery. So do you ever look at what you've written and said, Hey, that's a Zelazny moment or this, this idea was actually influenced by Tabat Dian Iltabar or anything like that. Like, how do you feel that influence connects with you? I mean, it's all over the place. Uh, some of it I'm very aware of. Some of it I'm probably still not aware of. Others I discover recently, you know, or, or at periodically I go, oh, wait, that's something I got from him too. Um, the... Um, one of the things that when people talk about his writing that doesn't get enough attention that I just recently realized that I had gone to school with him on is his sense of pacing. Uh, the the way he moves things along, not so quickly that you feel you don't have time to breathe. And so you can actually take a moment and and the events and and the prose, everything else has a chance to work its way into you, but things are never slow. 
Yes. And that's a really, a really fine line, and I'm sure it varies for people. There's other people who no doubt would have different problems with that or would different have different uh, – would feel differently about that. But what hit me is one of the ways he controls pacing, and uh, I have my own many ways of, of trying to hit that right – that sweet spot – but one of the things he does that I stole from him and only realized recently was his digressions. Uh, there's a classic one in the middle of uh, um, Isle, Isle of the Dead where something major has happened and he just stops and talks about this inc- these three incidents that happened that had an effect on him. Do you remember the scene I'm talking about? One where he's... Uh, almost dying in the desert and get saved by some alien creature and another where they blow up a planet and you know he he just gives those just relates that and draws some conclusions from it uh from how human beings operate and they're interesting and fun and delightful to read, and they also give you time to breathe and process and be ready for the next set of events. Uh, that book is a tour de force. Um, I I remember like what I can remember about those moments you're talking about is it almost felt like a short story in the middle of the work. Right, like three tiny, three pieces of flash flash fiction, really, all coming together to form a short story in the middle of the novel. Yeah, but that was a very effective means of controlling pacing, and that's something I didn't... Um, I, I only recently realized that I got from him because that is one of the things I do when I get that vague feeling that things are that events are falling too close together mm-hmm. is I will go, wait, OK, no, I'm just going to stop and address the reader and talk about something. I've got a character uh, in the Vlad novels, particularly who's ideally suited for that. And, and I can go, oh, right. Let me tell you how this works. Um, because it's a very conversational style of narration, mm-hmm. and and I, I I hadn't realized until recently that that's something I got from Roger. That you know that's really interesting because one of the things, and I want to be careful how I say this because like it's it's obvious I'm a huge fan of what you do, but Vlad has some real Zelazny characteristics because oh, yeah. he, he's navigating this very mythic world. I mean, the the pe- most of the people you're encountering are basically immortal elves, but he is like streetwise and savvy and not full of shit and focused on the practical in a way that feels very Zelazny to me. And it's one of the things that really, like the one of the first books I read was... Oh, it had to be Taltos, but uh, but I I mean I connected with that almost immediately, and I think it may be because I'd I'd grown up uh, reading Roger's work. It, well, it was also good. That might have had something to do with it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um. So I. I know I I and I managed to dig up an article at one point that I know that like uh you you at least once got a chance to hang out with Zelazny at a at a bar but like oh, oh yes so with Neil Gaiman three of us 
My God, to be a fly on the wall. Um, oh, oh my, I, I, I wish I was a fly on the wall. <laughs> I think I spent the whole thing with my mouth open. Neil is amazing. Um, he once identified himself and uh, Walter John Williams and me as being Roger's three bastard sons. Um, and the thing, is, the thing about Neil is he was ideally situated to be the next Rogers Lasney, and instead he decided to be the first Neil Gaiman, and I think it's worked out pretty well for him. Absolutely. And uh, to give you an idea of, like, where I'm at on the continuum, I, ha- I have a, uh, a short passage from Voice of the World when tattooed on my leg. Mm. So, like, uh, dropping Walter John Williams in the middle of this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Walter's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, we, we sat there in this bar. It was at a World Fantasy Con somewhere in the Southwest. I think it might have been Tucson. Um, and just for about two or three hours, talked writing. And, you know, I asked him, how do you write a short story? And he gave me this sort of startled, wide-eyed look, said, you write the last chapter of a novel. And I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. I I know one of the things that I've read about Zelazny, and I don't know whether it's true, was that he would he would write a precursor book to the one he actually published. That's one I had never heard. Huh. I know that that one of the things, and now after these many years, I might be editing my memories. I think I discovered this independently and then found out he did it too. Mm-hmm. But I could be lying to myself. It could be I copped it from him. But one of the things I know he did was write little vignettes about his characters that didn't go in the books. Just so he'd get to know them better. Write a tiny, here's an incident. Here was like a defining incident or a moment, an important moment in the, in the life of this character. And that's never going in the work. And uh, yeah, I, I do that too t- sometimes. Um, once it I ended up putting them in the book, which was really fun, but it, it fit that book. Wow. This is, yeah, I, I don't know what I was expecting from this interview, man, but this definitely wasn't it. We're, we're going all over the places to places I want to go. So this is great. <laughs> I, I suppose since I, I, uh, we started this by saying we were going to talk about Agyar. I, I'd probably better start asking questions about it. Um, everybody listening, for the love of God, if you haven't read the book, read the book before what I'm about to say, because I'm about to spoil the whole thing. Okay, I've done everything I can. Um, yep, 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 you're off the hook. Okay, so... Aguiar is a unique vampire novel in my experience because, like, I got about halfway through the thing before I even realized it was a vampire novel. It's it's the only book I've ever read with that sort of of camouflage, where where the actual like the nature of the book is part of the reveal. It's it's incredibly well crafted. Could I ask you like how you came up with that and what the process was to write it? Because you you caught me completely off guard. Okay, sure, pretty easy. Um, uh, let's see. A lot of things came together. Usually with a novel, it's a bunch of stuff coming together, um, disparate elements. But with that one, one of the key elements, although it happened a year or two, I think, before the book ever occurred to me, was I read Peace by Gene Wolfe. 
Okay. Um, have you read Peace? I have not. All right. Um, it's about an old man walking around his house reminiscing. Okay. And I put finished the book, and I said, right, there's stuff going on here I have no clue about because I'm stupid, and Gene Wolfe always wrote the same theme, which is, hey, Steve, you're stupid. <laughs> um, so I did what back in those days one did when confused by a Gene Wolfe novel I called Neil. I said, Neil, what? I just finished piece. What the hell's going on? He said, oh, right, okay. You know that, uh, that tree that falls over on the first page? Right Halfway through the book, he plants it. He's a ghost. And I said, oh. I said, right, and he commits between five and six cold-blooded murders during the course of the book. He doesn't tell you. Well, he tells you, but he doesn't tell you. All right, so... <laughs> I used to be able to do a much better Neil accent. Um, it's better than mine is, that's for sure. Uh, anyway, the uh, so that was kicking around the back of my head, how cool that was. And I remember having, um, discussing uh, with my brother-in-law, uh, we were talking about Dickens, and he was talking about some of his, the way he, he used symbol. And it flashed into my head that there could be a vampire talking to someone who was destined to destroy him. And the only clue would be these sharp, downward-pointing shadows above him, like a stake. And I went, that's a cool idea. And then, then I remembered Peace and went, I could write a vampire novel and make it first person. And never reveal that he's a vampire because, well, I mean, that part's easy because, you know, have, how many people writing about, um, you know, humans say, oh, I'm human. Yeah, you've, right. You, you don't talk about yourself. It's like a fish describing water. So, um, so it, uh, the, the journal form was pretty obvious. I mean, that just flashed is, is that he's going to be telling stories um, writing about his daily events in a journal. And so it's going to be, although not clearly, literally that, it's essentially going to be epistolary, mm -hmm. which Dracula was. And then my next thought was, okay, Dracula, which is still my favorite vampire novel, takes place from, uh, uh, let me think. I think it runs from like May to November. So I was going to make this run from November to May. And that's as far oh. as I got. When I looked at my brother-in-law, who'd still been talking all this time, and I said, sorry, excuse me. And I ran upstairs <laughs> to, to where my desk was. And six weeks later, I had a first draft. That, I love that. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, like, this book, one of the things it taught me is, like, I've always been, like, not a speed reader, but someone who reads very quickly and reads a book more than once. And me too. this book really, it slapped me in the face with my limitations because there was a lot of, like, back-end work that the back of my mind was doing where, like, you would describe a scene and you wouldn't really be clear about what's going on. Like, a feeding is happening, and I would be like, well, 
they're fucking clearly. And like, I didn't, I, my, my brain, like the amount of stuff that my brain actively helped me slip past really shocked me. I had to go right back around and read the book. Like, like after I finished and I think, I think I'm not the only person to have to make that choice with that novel. I kind of wanted that. Um, the way I set up the prologue and epilogue was that the prologue doesn't make sense until the second time you read it. Yes! Oh, okay. That, okay, that, that is very reassuring. I, I, I fell into your trap, man. That worked perfectly on me. Excellent. <laughs> it reminds me of the trap uh, Roger set, in, uh, which worked perfectly on me in uh, Bridge of Ashes which is not one of his best books. It's still brilliant. Um, do you remember the prologue of To Bridge of Ashes? I do not. It, I, it, mean, I mean, I was, I was the perfect sucker for that book. Um, he gives you this scene. And this thing happens. Okay, this thing happened. A completely unrelated, nothing else in common, another scene. Then he gives you a third scene. And then all of a sudden you notice, wait a minute, is there this one thing going on in all of these scenes? And and then he gives you a long explanation that sets up the explanation, but doesn't yet explain it. And it's <laughs> fascinating. And then he gives you, I think, if memory serves, there's this one last short scene. And right there, I was like, aha, I've got it. I see what's going on here. And the next sentence I read was, at last I begin to understand. And I'm like, <laughs> how the hell did he do that? <laughs> I'm going to have to reread that now. It's been a long time. Um, God. Yeah, actually, you know, the, this whole conversation, not only does it make me want to go back and, like, uh, re read everything that happened in Dragera again, uh, it, it, make, it makes me want to, uh, like, go back to my Zelazny wall. Oh, good. Um, That's always worthwhile. Absolutely. Um, Let's see. Oh, so one of the things I really noticed it when uh, uh, reading the the Vlad Taltos novels, but I find it everywhere in your work, is there's this real fondness for ritual. Like... Like maybe it's it's Vlad taking a walk through his territory, or like frequently there's there's incense, candles, meditation, and chanting, but it all seems designed to make a slow build to a goal to raise the stakes. And Agyar is no exception. Like the whole plot hinges on a ritual. Could could I ask where that came from? Is it just a part of your writing style, or do you like the idea of binding fa- the fantastic to clear rules? That is wonderful because that is something I had never, uh, never noticed. Okay. Um, that's cool. Where does that come from? Wow. I do like rituals. Um, I have, I mean, numbers of tiny rituals in my life. I don't know how, how universal that is, but I have hundreds of them. Um, you know, where I place my coffee cup when I'm working, uh, how I like things said, all that's ritual. Um, I find the more formalized rituals, uh, the kind one associates like high mass or something, I find fascinating because they're, um, uh, they're rote 
And yet, if done right, they have a powerful emotional investment and a powerful emotional result. They pull you into them. And I guess, I, I mean, I, I actually wrote a passage on that in uh, The Incrementalists. So um, my being unaware of that fascination makes me profoundly unself-aware. Because, <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually one of the passages in The Incrementalists I, uh, I'm most pleased with is the discussion of ritual. I'm, I'm going to have to go back to that after this. It, it's it's the one it's the one where Phil is describing the spiking ritual, and he talks about it in very general terms of um of what ritual is and how it works. Now I was I was dating a pagan at the time I wrote Agyar. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, considered and that she, an outside she was possibility. My source. Okay. On that, she was the one who who I went to. Her name was um, name is Maria Pinkstaff, and she's the one I went to and said, "Okay, here's the ritual I want. How do I do this?" Awesome. Okay. Well, that's I, that's a that's a better answer than I could have hoped for. That's awesome. Um, I one of the things that I've I've noticed, and I, I this is not as insightful, is that. A, a number of your works contain the undead, arguably contain vampires. When did you first become interested as, in vampires, either as a person or a writer? Page, uh, age 11. <laughs> when I read Dracula. That, that is very hard to argue with. Dracula's cool. I mean, in, there are so many, many ways in which, oh my God, it does not, it does not stand up. I mean, you know, society has moved on since then. Hello, good morning. But, uh, but he's still, I mean, still, that that is, that is a, a totally wonderful, I, I don't like horror, but it's not horror. It's, um, it's intense. Dracula is never terrifying in the book. I'm, you know, that's interesting because I'm literally re. Well, I, I okay, I'm misusing the word literally, so let me back up. Um, I am reading Dracula again right now in the hopes of using it at the end of this month in an episode. Oh, so okay, cool. W- what you're saying right now is definitely going to inform that. I'm gonna like. I think of it as a scary book. I'm gonna have to go back and like think as I go through. Is it scary? Uh, the characters are scared. Yes, but you're not. But you're not. No, you're you're definitely invested, and you're pulling for them to defeat this monster. Even though a part of you is going, he's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a. So um, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna do a, like a, a whipsaw tangent for a second because before I started working on this podcast, I started working on one that we I never ended up launching, and I called it Bar Sinister. You know the old like for bastard, right? Uh, but what it was going to be about was the drinking habits of famous authors. <laughs> Fun. And Good one, title. <laughs> what I when I started researching Bram Stoker, one of the things I figured out is one there wasn't a lot of information about his drinking habits, but there was a weird temperance movement that sort of cropped up at the same time that really? he 
Yes, and it was basically around the idea of, well, people shouldn't drink alcohol, but they should want to get fucked up. And so the bars served liquid ether. Oh, my God. is That's wonderful. Yeah, and so, like, I don't know this for sure, but I have this I have this image of him going to a bar after a show and drinking liquid ether and, like, burping for 20 minutes afterwards. That's, that's delightful. <laughs> and Byron missed it. Oh, I know. It would have been perfect, right? <laughs> okay. Um, as long as I've gotten a little silly, I have a question that you're definitely going to think is silly, but it's really important to me because it's been bugging me for about 27 years. All right. So in the early 90s, I got my first job uh, after college as a mailboy in Minneapolis. And afterwards, well, I was I was reading Yendi at the time and some buddies of mine brought me to an Irish bar after work that Friday to celebrate. I got loaded. And when the band was playing, I I announced that the drummer wrote my book and I started walking up to the stage to talk to the band. And my my uh, my friends wisely grabbed me and drug me out of there. And to this day, I've been teased about it. Is there any possibility that was you? Was it uh, the Irish two on Lake Street? Yeah, I think so. Yep, that was me. I used validation. To, <laughs> yep, I I, I I used to play um a lot of uh, cheesy country rock pickup band. No, nah, it wasn't. They weren't actually pickup bands. I shouldn't say that. Did that once in a while, but mo- but me and friends would throw together some some kind of you know country rock band usually built around um uh a a stunning lead guitarist a bass player uh and drummer who could follow anything and a rhythm guitarist uh lead singer who knew 5000 songs <laughs> and you know your set would be something like um one country song per set and uh and then 10 uh, out-of-date rock songs. So you do a lot of Bear, uh, Chuck Berry, a lot of Beatles, a lot of Rolling Stones, that kind of thing. That, that sounds amazing. And uh, uh, they were just absolute joy because, you know, you fill dance floors. Filling dance floors is fun. Yeah, so I know you had a band at one point, or may have it now, called Cats Laughing. Was this tied into that? No, uh, only in the sense of... Uh, being a roughly the same period that you know cats laughing came a little later that was different okay. that was my good band <laughs> I, I i i miss that band the way you miss a lover you've never gotten <sighs> it was the most amazing joyful experience playing with those people well th- thank you for convincing me that i wasn't crazy 27 years ago and and thanks for sharing that with me um, so I guess I, I'm down to two major questions unless, you know, of course there's anything you want to talk about. Uh, the, the first is, um, are there any upcoming projects that you'd like to talk about, uh, and share with our, our audience? And the second is, can we have you back? I would love to interview <laughs> you again sometime. Well, as for the second, yes. Excellent. Uh, as for the first... Uh, two things come to mind. One is the next book I've got out, which is The Baron of Magister Valley, which is the Dumas-esque one by my, by Parfi of Roundwood, the narrator who will never use one word if he can find six that will do the job. <laughs> um, it's 
this summer, June or July, uh, I'm pretty happy with that one. Um, the other project I had not been going to mention, but I will because of you. So, uh, you know, I, maybe some of your audience cares, but you personally, from everything you've been saying, should really look into whether you can uh, come to this little literary convention we throw on called uh, Narrativity. Uh, the website is narrativity.fun. I do the programming. It's about story, and it's heavily craft-oriented uh, Labor Day weekend in Minneapolis. Okay. And I think you would love it just from what you've said. It's tiny, you know, somewhere maybe 100 people, um, but it's intense. Narrativity. Yep, and the website is narrativity.fun. Fun, and that's Labor Day, and I I am there. I mean, I have uh, I have so many connections to Minneapolis that honestly, people are mad at me for not going back there anyway. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, of course. And uh, I would I would like to to you know, reciprocate an offer. Um, I. Uh, I, I, as you know, I am in Vegas, and I I know occasionally you might come out here. Um, if you ever do like uh, dinner on Podside, please, I'd love I'd love to buy you a couple of drinks and pick your brain some more. That sounds delightful. Wonderful. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for everything you've done, and I, I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate your time, and. Oh, my God, was this cool. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is fun. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>